EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Shell. The Fit for 55 should ensure every major economic sector has a viable pathway to net zero that is consistent with 2050 climate neutrality. We all know that today energy prices are making the headlines across the EU as this is a situation that has an impact on most Europeans. They are also looking to Europe for a response. Today we are providing that European response. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. We've got a lot of big stories to get through this week. As you just heard from the EU's energy commissioner, Kadri Simpson, soaring energy prices are top of mind for Europeans paying the bills and the politicians trying to figure out what they can and should do about the problem. We'll dive into that with our energy reporter, Aitor Hernandez-Morales, later in the podcast. Also, the House of Kurz is crumbling. Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz quit over the weekend amid stunning corruption allegations. But is it really curtains for Kurz? And where do his travails leave Austria and European Conservatives who'd seen him as their great saviour? We'll get into all of that in just a moment, but first, let's get to our podcast panel. So, it's a special Central European podcast panel uh, this week. Let's say hi to Zosia Vanat, who follows Poland for us. Hi, Zosia. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Uh, to Lily Bayer, who's in Budapest. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And podcast regular Matt Karnichnik, kind of on home turf in Vienna this week. Hi, Matt. Grüß Gott aus Wien. Grüß Gott, Herr Kollege. Okay, uh, let's dive right into it. And uh, Zosia, start with you. The big thing that has really made ripples all across Europe, certainly in um, political terms, is uh, ruling by the Polish Constitutional Tribunal. Can you explain briefly to us what the tribunal ruled and why it's such a big deal? So last Thursday, the Constitutional Tribunal in Poland ruled that the Polish constitution takes primacy over some of the EU laws and some of the judgments from the European Court of Justice, the EU's highest court. And now what that means in practice is now that whenever there is a controversial ruling from the European Court of Justice, for example, on the organization of the Polish courts, of the Polish legal system, the constitutional tribunal uh, can decide that this ruling is actually not in line with the Polish constitution. And thus the government doesn't have to comply with the ruling. It doesn't apply to all the laws, but I think it's fair to say that it applies to the fundamentals of the EU treaties. Right. And this is really, EU legal experts would tell you, this is really questioning the legal fundament, the legal bedrock of the EU, that it's based on this idea that there is law that is common across the European Union, that ultimately disputes are resolved at the highest court, the Court of Justice of the European Union. And if you start to question that, um, certainly that seems to be the majority view, you're really questioning the whole basis of, of the European Union. It opens a real 
Pandora's box. And this is also part of this longer running battle, if you like, between the current Polish government and the EU institutions, and I would say the EU political mainstream, in terms of rule of law, right, the independence of the courts. Because in fact, the tribunal that made this judgment, you know, a lot of people would say that some of the, at least some of the members of that tribunal were not appointed in an independent fashion. In other words, this is already a kind of political tribunal. What I think is important here is that this motion was brought to the tribunal by the prime minister himself. Um, so obviously, after the ruling, the government was very, very happy with the result. Prime minister basically repeated the stance of the tribunal, saying that this is the matter of the country's sovereignty and that this is not the first time a country decides that their national constitution takes primacy over EU law in certain areas. They mentioned the German ruling, but also the French, the Spanish. They, they basically say that the half of the EU member states have already decided in one way or another that their constitution is in primacy uh, over the EU law. So they say that they are not alone. Yeah, and this is none of us here are um, professors of EU law. There certainly seems to be a view among many of them that this is quite different in character what the Polish Constitutional Tribunal has done because it's it's actually questioned specific articles of the EU treaties, right? Of the of the founding treaties, again the bedrock of the EU. It's basically saying these don't apply or they certainly don't take primacy over um, Polish law, over the Polish constitution. Matt, I don't know if you want to chime in on that. There was this German constitutional court ruling, which was related to the um, European Central Bank's bond buying programme, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't know if you have a view on whether that in any way is um, equivalent to this or whether it at least gave political cover, perhaps, for other governments to take this stance, as I believe you wrote at the time when that judgment was issued. I don't think it's equivalent to this, and uh, I actually am a professor of EU constitutional law. It's a little, little known fact. <laughs> oh, really? It. So many yeah, hidden talents. Yeah. But uh, I do think that at the very least, it's given the polls a very good talking point because this stuff is quite complicated, and the layperson's going to say, well, if the Germans did it, then why can't we? Which is exactly the way it's playing out in the Polish public and in the political debate in Poland. And on the surface, that sounds very reasonable. And the problem is, is that the Germans in a very arrogant way, I think one can say, were trying to tell the EU court how it should operate because the Germans see themselves as having or the German constitutional court sees itself basically as the first among equals in Europe at the constitutional court level. And and yet, I think politically, this is turning into a complete disaster. Although if you get into the weeds of this, what the polls are doing is much different, is much more insidious, and could ultimately end in a complete train wreck disaster if the Europeans aren't careful here. Right. Well, let's come to the EU response, Lily. You've normally in Brussels for us and, and follow rule of law issues uh, from here. Give us a sense of the immediate uh, reaction from the European Commission and anything you can tell us about what you're hearing uh, behind the scenes about how they might respond to this in terms of concrete measures. So uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen issued a very uh, strongly worded statement, at least in, in her standards, by her standards, a very strongly worded statement uh, saying that she's, quote, deeply concerned about the court's ruling 
Uh, she said that the commission will use all the powers that we have in this case. But, and this is the big but, um, I do think that this is the moment of truth for Ursula von der Leyen when it comes to the rule of law, because since coming to office, she has always given, you know, very big speeches with nice rhetoric about defending democratic values. But in practice, we haven't seen this commission taking much concrete action when it comes to the rule of law. And with this particular court case, they are in a situation where either they take very clear, strong action, or they don't, and it will be very clear which path they choose. It'll be very difficult to find a fudge. So there are now three options on the table or a combination of three options. So the first, which I think is very likely, is an infringement proceeding. So they might take Poland to court. It's, it's a very long process. They will send letters raising concerns about uh, the case, and that can ultimately end up in front of the European High Court. The second option is continuing to delay Poland's recovery funding. So Poland's recovery and resilience plan is on the table, but it still hasn't received a green light from the European Commission. So that stalemate could continue. And the third option is triggering a mechanism which links respect to the rule of law, to EU funding. This is a mechanism which has been on the books since January 1st, but has never actually been used. And my sense thus far is that Ursula von der Leyen is undecided. So I do think that behind the scenes, there are conversations going on about which combination of tools to use. And it does seem a bit like she's hesitating. Mm. Yeah, and uh, as chance would have it, Zosha, you were at the uh, court, the Court of Justice of the European Union in Luxembourg this week, where Hungary and Poland were challenging that very measure that Lily referred to, the measure that would allow the European Union to stop funding, to cut off funds to a country if it considered that uh, that country was in breach of certain rule of law standards. Um, just give us a sense of what it's like to be there. Paint a picture for us of actually being in a court of justice hearing. It's definitely very impressive, especially being there during such a political case, because, you know, like in the room, there are only the representatives of the sites. And no one else is let in. The um, hearings aren't recorded. So it is... A problem for journalists like ourselves because we we really have to type very quickly whatever whatever has been said. So you're kind of monitoring in an, in a neighboring room. Do they kind of pipe in a feed? Yes, there is a separate room for for the press, and there's also a separate room for anyone else, the NGOs, the rule of law organizations. And that hearing took place in this uh, monumental grand hall, very golden, very beautiful, very impressive in general. And what I always find fascinating when I go to the court's hearings is the level of the argumentation of all the lawyers. It's really excellent. It is quite different, isn't it, from what we normally do as journalists, which is often kind of following a political debate or back and forth in parliament or press conference. And it's a different arena. Lily, uh, let's switch back for a quick. It was so busy in Central Europe over the past few days. And of course, um, really what we're talking about here is this kind of battle or, or conflict over the EU's core values, this kind of, if you like, uh, this group of illiberal leaders, and even within uh, that group, there may be degrees of illiberalism. But one who might be counted among that group is the Czech Prime Minister Andrej Babiš, and uh, he was up for for re-election at the weekend. How's it looking for him? 
It's not looking very good for Andrei Babish right now.、Uh, surprisingly, his party Ano did relatively poorly in the election. It will now be、uh, very difficult, if not impossible, for him to lead a government. So, an alliance of several center-right and right-leaning parties actually got first place by a very narrow margin, and they might be able to then create a coalition. Uh, with some others and basically push Babish out, but there's a lot of uncertainty, especially since the Czech president Zeman、um, was hospitalized a few days ago, and so it's unclear what the mechanics of the coalition building will look like. But what is clear is that Babish must be incredibly disappointed right now.、Mm. Okay, well we'll see how that develops.、Uh, Lily and Zosha, we're going to let you go. Thank you. Thank you. And Matt and I will have a chat about、uh, Austrian politics, which has also been、uh, extraordinary in recent days. Matt, do you want to give us the, the quick summary of the Sebastian Kurz story, the latest episode of House of Kurz, as you've been calling it? So I think, as most listeners probably have heard, Sebastian Kurz decided to resign over the weekend, which was something of a surprise because he had said when this scandal first emerged last week,、uh, sort of midweek, following raids in his office and in his party offices, that he was not going to resign.、Uh, he's being accused of bribery and embezzlement in connection with. Some polls that were paid for by the finance ministry way back in 2017, when、uh, he was still foreign minister. And at the time, Kurz already had his sights on the chancellery. And、uh, first, he wanted to take over his own party, which he eventually did. And what he's accused of, he together with nine other people in his inner circle, is of using finance ministry money to pay for. Polls, basically false polls, that kind of played to his political agenda, and that these polls were then placed in friendly media, mainly tabloids, and that these、uh, tabloids in turn received lucrative advertising contracts from the government. So this kind of hit the. Austrian political landscape like a bomb, as you can imagine. And by Saturday, Kurz was under too much pressure, I think, from within his own party, which was worried about a collapse of the government and that he would end up in opposition, that the party would end up in opposition. So what's happened is that he stepped down, said he was going to take over his parliamentary group, and the former foreign minister now, Alexander Scharnberg. Was sworn in as chancellor, which keeps the People's Party in power in Austria for now, at least. And yet,、uh, just a, a, a last note on this: Schadenberg's、uh, first couple of days have been、uh, quite rocky because the first thing he did after he was sworn in was to、uh, make clear that he's still. Very beholden to Sebastian Kurz, and also that he doesn't think that he's guilty of any of the crimes he's being accused of here, which、uh, created a bit of a stir because it made it look like Schallenberg was attacking the independent judiciary. 
Yeah, it's quite striking that Kurtz is very much still around, right? He's not Chancellor, he remains leader of his party. He's taken over the parliamentary group. I know you've been talking to somebody this week while you've been down in Vienna who can give a bit more insight into this. And I think we'll hear some of his insights as we continue to talk. So just tell us who you've been talking to and and kind of why he was a, a good person to talk to about this scandal. So I spoke with Thomas Hofer, who is a political analyst in Austria, an independent political analyst and a former journalist. He has uh, written extensively about Austrian politics over the past decades and also spent a long time in the U.S. uh, studying political campaigning. And uh, he has, I think, some unique insights on Kurz and on the evolution of Kurz's government since it took over in, in 2017, which was a real shift in Austrian politics because Kurz didn't just take over this old conservative party. He basically got in there and blew it up. You know, some would say that uh, the way in which he seized control of this party basically led us to this point because he he moved it away from its, you know, more consensus driven approach to politics to a one man show, uh, which was very reliant on him and on very aggressive power politics. I'm interested to know whether you or he see something broader about Austrian political culture here. As as you say, Sebastian Kurz was very much a disruptor. Uh, we should say that Sebastian Kurz uh, denies any wrongdoing, thinks, you know, kind of admits that maybe he had a few text messages he would word differently these days, but doesn't really think he's done anything uh, wrong beyond that. But the, the text messages kind of paint a picture of this system or the system that's alleged to have taken place, uh, you know, to the point of Kurz even trying to damage his own party so that, in other words, he will then be installed as leader. I mean, it's real political plotting, but all kind of laid out in these messages. But I wonder if there is something, is there a sense that there's something about Austrian political culture here? I think there's definitely a a strong flavor of that in what's happened here. And here's what Thomas Hofer had to say about that. This comes from a system where there's a lot of money in politics. First of all, we have a very, very uh, high funding, an official party funding, a public party funding in Austria, if you look at the whole OECD. And then, of course, you had not really good laws, really limiting the amount of private money in there. And I think this led to the impression among a couple of parties that anything goes. Of course, what we see now in terms of corruption has still to be proven. But if this uh, is true... Uh, this is, of course, uh, the next level because, you know, and this is what the prosecutors say in their search warrant, is, of course, that money of the Ministry of Finance was used potentially to fund those polls for Mr. Kutz. And this is, of course, something that I, and I'm, I'm in the business for, for 25 years, first as a journalist and then as a consultant, I didn't think was was possible. And... Uh, The interesting thing about Kurz is that he's borrowed from abroad. He's looked at the way uh, people like Barack Obama operated and came to power, Bill Clinton, and used a lot of advisors from the U.S., for example, to help him in his in his political strategy. Kurz and his team were always and I think and I'd say in terms of campaigning, they were very professional. 
This was really American standard. They worked with uh, Barack Obama's database, uh, Blue State Digital back then, and also in terms of messaging and, you know, uh, coloring the, the old uh, People's Party new, having all those new frames out there, really taking away the big theme or the big issue of the Freedom Party migration from them. So he was actually also seen within the European Conservative Party as some kind of new, new, not only new kid on the block, but also somebody uh, who could really frame maybe conservative issues in a new way. He was some, some kind of the anti-Merkel, right? And it worked. In 2017, um, he succeeded in taking over the party. Uh, he pulled the plug on the coalition his party was in with the Social Democrats at that time and triggered new elections, which, which he won. And then he did something that we hadn't really seen in Austrian politics before, which was to put himself as chancellor at the center of everything. And, you know, that obviously uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, even within his, his own party. And I think that is sort of one of the reasons why there's this kind of sudden backlash now, because as popular as he was amongst voters, he created a lot of enemies for himself along the way. Yeah, one of the things I wondered about this scandal is it's a, the kind of scandal that fascinates uh, journalists and political insiders. And I wondered how, if we have a sense of how it's playing out in, in Austria more more broadly, you know, on the Zimmeringer Hauptstrasse or the um, Keplerstrasse in Graz, you know, two, two places I uh, remember fondly. But, you know, is this one of those things where the kind of political bubble gets very excited about it, but the rest of the country doesn't? I guess it's hard to tell from the polls because we don't know if we can trust them anymore. But what's your sense of it? That's right. I think the polls are very uh, dubious at the, at the moment in terms of their, their reputation. Uh, I do think that people are angered by this scandal, though, because Kurtz really sold himself as this clean-cut, you know, do-gooder. He was going to be the new broom that changed the way the political system worked. And because of his youth and reputation as a moderate and as, as somebody who really appealed to people's sense that, you know, things could change, um, I think there's a lot of disappointment that he, turns out, was playing by the very same rules that he was accusing other people of using, using dirty campaigning and so forth. And whether he's guilty or not, or whether he's indicted or not, what we know about him, I think, is from these chats and the way that he operated is not in dispute. And it is really straight out of House of Cards, some of the things. Let's hear from Thomas again on that point. You know, Quitz, as you said before, uh, said, oh, I'm the clean guy on the stage, right? I, I would never do that. I'm not attacking anyone. Now we know even without a judge. We don't need a judge anymore for that. We know that also the People's Party embraced dirty campaigning heavily. And in terms of credibility, there is a huge and there was a huge impact. There's still a lot of people out there who, who trust in quits and say, okay, this is a campaign against him. But I think for the vast majority right now, this is gone. And you could see that effect over the last couple of months where, where his uh, figures were deteriorating and where he, he became a m much more polarized figure than he, than he has been originally. Because at the start of his career, he was really able to go beyond the boundaries of his party. That's why he said, okay, this is a new movement. But still, I think that's gone now. So I think there is a, a deep sense of betrayal by many people in Austria now. I think the other really interesting and important aspect about Kurz is that 
he has a very slick political image, which is not necessarily supported by the policy that he's been able to introduce. And by that, I mean, you know, he's he's often accused of being a fairly shallow politician in the same way uh, that Donald Trump was, somebody who uh, is not really immersed in the policy details, but who is very good at working with the media and manipulating the media even to serve his own agenda. And maybe another thing worth uh, mentioning here, Matt, is that for a while at least, Kurtz saw himself as kind of the future of the European centre-right or European conservatism and had quite a few admirers, right, uh, particularly in, in Germany. He had many admirers in Germany, especially in the, the centre-right party, the, the Christian Democratic Union, because they faced many of the same problems that the Austrian party faced, which was that it had too many old people, it was a bit stuffy, and they needed to rejuvenate the party in some way. So they they naturally looked to Austria and to Kurz's success. So there was a lot of excitement about Kurz and I think a lot of hope that after Merkel moved on, that they would find some way to replicate Kurz's success. And now, ever since the scandal has come out, I think you're you're hearing fewer people make that case. Right. And it, it raises even more questions, I think, for the whole of, of Europe's centre-right. This, As they search, just as you were uh, suggesting, the CDU has been doing that. I mean, this is a kind of common issue across the European People's Party, this uh, alliance of European centre-right parties. Do they go kind of right-wing populist? Do they stay in the middle? Uh, how much do they kind of build their identity around personalities? How much should be about policy and it feels like what's happened with Kurtz really takes them back to square one on that. Well, uh, Matt, it's good to know that the land of your ancestors is is leading Europe in something, uh, scandals. They're also still pretty good at skiing. Skiing and scandals. It's good. It's good. Land of skiing and scandals. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us from Vienna. Thank you. Now, just a quick thank you. We've had a mini flurry lately of nice emails and reviews from listeners around Europe and beyond, from Ukraine to Amsterdam to Colorado. Thanks for taking the time to get in touch. And Brussels bubble people, we know you're listening too, even if some of you are a bit shy about saying so. Hi, Ursula. Now, right after this short break, we'll dive into the topic on many people's minds these days as winter approaches and we reach for our heaters, energy prices, and what the EU can do to keep them under control. That's up for debate right after this. Stay with us. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Shell welcomes the Fit for 55 as a framework to accelerate investment in clean energy solutions. The combined application of a legislative initiative should help ensure every major economic sector has a viable pathway to net zero. Sectoral targets to accelerate clean energy demand need to be strengthened and synchronized with measures to boost supply. As a company that is committed to reach net zero emissions by 2050 in step with society, we look to the Fit for 55 to deliver first, ambitious climate targets, second, stronger carbon pricing, And third, a premium for innovative technologies that need to be deployed at scale, including a higher renewable energy target and renewable mandates in hard-to-abate sectors. As energy prices surge across the continent, let's catch up on what's behind the big spike and what politicians are doing about it. 
To do that, let's turn to our energy reporter, Aitor Hernandez-Morales. Hi, Aitor. Hey, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining us. So let's start with the basics. How big a spike is this in energy prices across Europe? Okay, so an important thing to keep in mind is that there's a difference between the wholesale electricity price and then the retail electricity prices, which is what consumers are feeling at home and seeing in their electricity bills. In terms of the wholesale electricity markets, we're seeing a 200% spike compared with last year. In terms of retail prices, essentially a third of the retail price is influenced by that wholesale market. So ultimately, consumers are facing higher electricity bills, especially if they're not on fixed rate tariffs, which means if they're not linked to this constant set price that they're paying month by month, they're going to be paying very expensive electricity bills if they're actually pegged to whatever's going on on the wholesale market. Okay, so it's serious already and could get more serious. What is behind it? What are the causes that are driving this big spike in prices? So there are several factors. The key one would be spiking natural gas prices around the world. And this just has to do with global markets. In the case of Europe in particular, we had an unusually cold winter and a very hot summer, which meant that we were using power in ways that we weren't necessarily ready to use it, both in the winter to keep warm and in the summer to keep cool. Add to that the fact that this year we're seeing the return of demand after COVID, and what we're seeing is a demand spike that Europe isn't really prepared to deal with. Certainly in terms of reserves, we just don't have the gas reserves that are needed right now to to meet demand. Okay. I think we wanted to talk a little bit about how this kind of works on a European level, right? How gas prices or power prices are set. Can you talk us through that process? You explained it in a piece which we will link to in our show notes, but have a shot at explaining how these prices are actually set on a day-to-day basis, right, as I understand. Europe is ruled by wholesale electricity markets, and these operate according to a marginal pricing scheme. So the way the marginal pricing scheme works is that the price of electricity is linked to the price of the most expensive fuel needed to meet demand. What that means in a theoretical situation is that if we're talking about an 100% demand, you can have 95% of that demand met with renewable energy sources, which are very, very cheap. But the price of overall electricity will be set by the 5% of natural gas that you need to reach that 100%. So that becomes a huge problem when natural gas prices are spiking because ultimately you're paying for all your electricity at that level. Mm, Yeah, which is interesting and may sound strange to a lot of people, but there is a a kind of logic behind it. The logic behind it is that you are, in a certain degree, providing funding both for infrastructure that's already installed, but also infrastructure that you're installing for all of these energy sources. So, for example, this is considered to be very good for the expansion of renewable energy in Europe. Mm. And what is the Commission saying about all of this? Indeed. So the Commission is is responding to a petition from national governments that have been asking Brussels to kind of take the lead on this. Especially last week at the council meeting of the bloc's environment ministers, there was a huge push to really have the Commission come out and say something. So under that pressure, the commission, and especially Energy Commissioner uh, Kadri Simpson, agreed to bring out this energy pricing toolbox. So the idea behind this toolbox is that it's not the EU or the commission in particular rolling out new measures, but rather that uh, the commission will come out and tell countries what they can and cannot do to address the crisis without overstepping EU law. So in terms of the of the main short-term measures that we're looking at, one of the things that the commission will recommend that they, that they say is totally fine is to slash the taxes that are applied to electricity bills. National governments can tweak levies, for example, and they can also offer limited assistance to industries that are being affected by this as long as they don't violate 
EU state aid rules in the process. Then in addition to that, the commission reminds them that, yeah, they can use ETS revenues to help out low-income families that are being affected by this. Similarly, low-income families can be offered, uh, you know, special programs to either defer payments on electricity bills, and uh, countries are also allowed to pass measures that would then forbid power companies, for example, from leaving poor companies in the dark if they can't pay their bills. So all of those are measures that countries could have adopted already. Indeed, many countries have. Spain, for example, has put many of these measures into play. But the commission is saying, this is totally legal. This is what you can do. In terms of what the usefulness of this is, because I I understand that many of us can look at it and say, oh, the commission's just repeating what's already on the books. This communication that they're rolling out is actually very helpful to national governments who are under immense pressure both from consumers but also from uh, domestic opposition groups because now they can hold up this communication and say, look, I've done everything that I possibly can. Brussels has set these red lines. I have applied everything that I can to tackle this crisis. And so, you know, beyond that, it's out of my hands. Mm. In terms of longer-term things that can be done and that the commission is actually proposing more actively. So the commission is committed to look into the joint procurement of gas. So that's that idea that we would collectively buy gas. And that may be linked to a a revision of the third energy package related to gas that, that will be coming out in December. Then they also say that they are going to come out with a proposal for council recommendations on the social impacts of the green transition. So that's obviously linked to the wider socioeconomic pains that are going to come with this switch to a greener Europe. And then they're also looking into asking countries to provide more data on energy poverty in general so that they can have a clearer perspective on what's going on there. And then in the very, very long term, the commission is going to go back to its standard line. And this is something they've been repeating basically since Commission President Ursula von der Leyen rolled out the Green Deal, which is this plea with the member countries to really roll out renewable energy. And as part of that, what they're going to look at is if there's anything else that Brussels can do to simplify permitting, because that continues to be a huge obstacle to installing new solar panels and wind turbines across the block. Mm. And do we know how, I mean, is there any estimates on how long this kind of crunch, if it is just a crunch or spike, is going to last? I mean, I heard it described as temporary, but that can be, you know, very short or kind of long term. Is there any kind of end in sight to... In a sense, obviously, if you were a big believer in the power of free markets, you would say, well, the market will figure this out for itself, right? Sooner or later, that will come back into balance. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a long while. So all the analysts that we've spoken to expect that the prices are going to be pretty crazy through the winter and at least into the spring. So we're not expecting any relief before April. And then moving forward from then, prices are still going to be you know, higher than they were before. But in terms of the longer term future, there is no immediate relief in sight simply because the technology may or may not exist, but it's definitely not on the ground. So in order for us to get out of this vulnerability to, for example, like the gas markets, we would have to move towards a system that's 100% green. Right now, green energy is great. It generated 38% of the electricity used in the block in 2020, but that's still not 100%. One way we could get around this is by having sophisticated battery storage technology where we could put that green energy and that way, you know, when the wind is blowing, when the sun's not shining, we would have that reserve to meet demand. But right now that infrastructure isn't in place and in, in some circumstances it hasn't even been developed yet, at least not at the scale that we'd need. So we're going to be vulnerable for a while. Where the commission is right is that they point out the more green energy that we have, the more clean energy that we have, the likelier we are to meet 
the demand without having to rely on those fossil fuels. But it will be a while before we're 100% green. Okay, Aitor, thanks very much. You're very welcome. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And remember, we're always keen to hear from new and long-time listeners. You can contact us directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>